Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The eyes desire peace with England as with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. We want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's Welcome to the History of Ireland. After the Free State took control of Dublin, they very quickly set their eyes on Cork, known as the Rebel County for a reason. But before the Free State could move on Cork, they had to work their way across a short-lived defensive line from Limerick City to Waterford. As we discussed, when Liam Lynch realised that the Four Courts in Dublin were being taken over by the Free State, he retreated with his anti-IRA forces back down the country. Ordered the IRA to head to Limerick to reinforce the anti-treaty garrison there. His plan was to create a defensive line across the south of the country. His thinking was that if his forces could hold that line, they could make life difficult for the free state and maybe destabilize the whole new country. As the years went on, this became known as the Munster Republic. But it should be said that this was never really a term used at the time. The Free State were also moving quickly, and 400 Free State troops snuck into Limerick late one night, led by a Michael Brennan and a Donica O'Hannigan. These 400 weren't quite a match for the anti-IRA's 700 stationed in the city, but rather than attack, Lynch tried to broker a peace deal with the two leaders. On July 7th, Lynch, Brennan and O'Hannigan signed an agreement saying that they would meet. Lynch hoped that he could either turn them to his cause or at least have them sit out any fighting. But in the end, he wasn't able to convince the two men and on July 11th, once pro-treaty reinforcements arrived, Brennan announced that the agreement was cancelled. The Free State started by attacking the IRA garrison in what now the Limerick Court Office. This is another example where Lynch kind of lost any advantage he might have had by stalling. Fascinating to look at how reluctant he was to fight at this point in the conflict. Over the next week, Limerick City was overcome with firefights. Similar to the Battle of Dublin, this was dangerous city fighting, with both sides attacking, retreating, and trying to take control of strategic streets and buildings. The Free State actually really went getting anywhere until about the 19th of July, when more reinforcements arrived. Again, the benefit of having artillery meant they could simply bombard any defensive position the IRA had. And so, on the 21st of July, the IRA were forced to flee the city, 
with one man describing how we were in a tight situation and in the end, we had no chance against them. Retreat became inevitable and when it came, it resembled a stampede. We fell back through a dare, finally ending up in Budavent. We felt hopelessly disillusioned and disheartened. The whole flaming struggle seemed to be leading nowhere. With the fall of Limerick, Lynch's dream of a Limerick-Waterford defensive line died. He wrote to Ernie O'Malley, saying, The agreement reached at Limerick was broken by the enemy. I believe we will eventually have to destroy all our posts, have to operate as of old in flying columns. This didn't occur straight away though, and initially there was still an attempt to fight a more conventional battle, along a battleground that ran through the countryside in and around the Cork border. The town of Kilmallock became the next flashpoint, and both sides were, quote, maintaining a string of outposts at crossroads and on hilltops, with a no-man's land varying in width between a hundred yards and a mile. But several things started going against the IRA at this point. First of all, this conventional style of fighting, well, it played perfectly into the well-equipped hands of the Irish Free State. It became increasingly obvious, as Lynch's quote I just mentioned points out, that guerrilla tactics were going to be the only real way forward. However, there was an issue with this as well. One of the things that had made the original flying columns so effective against the British was the support of locals in a given area. Food, shelter and moral support had all been supplied by civilians who were sick of the British. But remember, the majority of the public were pro-treaty and they provided very, very little support to the IRA. This was compounded by the fact that the Free State, backed by government money, was happy to pay any of the locals for food and supplies. The IRA were also still not a particularly cohesive army. They retained their grassroots autonomy, which meant each unit kind of acted in its own interest. When there was talk of the Free State attacking Tralee from the sea, well, the Kerry unit peeled away from Kilmallock to defend their home county. The Cork Brigade did the same thing, though this was a little bit more planned as it was becoming increasingly clear that holding Cork City might be a smarter move than trying to fight this traditional style battle. So in the end, on August 5th, Kilmallock was abandoned by the IRA and the Free State simply walked into it. Over the next few days, they pushed on, taking control of other villages and towns in the area, including Adair, Rathkeel and Newcastle West. Cork then became the bastion for the anti-treaty IRA. They commandeered workshops to build armoured cars, bombs and mines. They took over the Cork Examiner and they occupied the port of Cork, taking about £2,000 a day from this. Funds they desperately needed if they were going to keep up the war effort. They also began fortifying the area in any way possible. Throughout July, they destroyed bridges and blocked shipping canals with two barges. The occupation dragged the city to a standstill, and the public, well, generally they weren't too pleased. Admittedly, they were at least now being paid for their services, thanks to the money taken from the ports, 
but it wasn't enough to garner widespread support. And in fact, there were even plans to develop strikes to protest the IRA occupation. Before any strikes could occur, though, the Free State Army attacked. As we know, they'd been slowly pushing in overland from Limerick and through Kilmallock. The plan was then to compound this advance by pincering the IRA with an attack from the sea. So, at midnight of Tuesday the 8th of August, three days after taking Kilmallock, 450 Free State Army landed at Cork's lower harbour. Weirdly, they managed to slip right by the IRA sentries, who believed their boats to be mail boats returning for repairs. But once the IRA realised what was happening, they were quick to respond. They scuttled one of the barges to block the river, though the second one was towed away by the Free State before it too could be used as a defensive line. The IRA then began blocking bridges around the harbour and basically doing anything they could to hamper the progress of the Free State. Meanwhile, the Free State secured a landing zone for their artillery, vehicles and more troops. Tuesday was spent sniping back and forth as the two sides assembled. The IRA was joined by those retreating from Kilmallock, while the Free State continued shipping its men into Cork City and the surrounding towns. All of this set the scene for a dramatic conflict on Wednesday the 9th, in around the Rochstown area. Historians estimate there are 300 Free State troops and 200 IRA that day, already to tear into the other side. To this day, if you're in the area, you can see the field boundaries used by the IRA, as well as a gate in Rochdown, still known as Battlefield Gate, which is clear marks where it was pierced by bullets. Historians Joanna Brook and Damien Shields tell an amazing story about one soldier hit in the battle. His name was Flood, a free state soldier, and he had been instructed to advance across a field to outflank the IRA. But the IRA were waiting for Flood and his comrades. And as he came on their position, they let off a burst of machine gun fire, and Flood was gunned down. Suddenly, one of the IRA broke cover and charged across to young Flood. His name was Frank O'Donoghue, and he had fought with Flood in the War of Independence. He grabbed the hand of his old friend and said an act of contrition in his ear. It was one thing to shoot a friend down, but you couldn't let him go to heaven without his last rites. As Brookenshield put it, this moment epitomizes the bitter ironies of the Civil War that have made it such a difficult episode in Ireland's recent history. I have to say, I agree wholeheartedly with them. The fighting carried on into Thursday, at which point the IRA, again outgunned, were forced to fall back through the city. They torched any and all military supply dumps, and soon smoke billowed throughout Cork. But all in all, the city did get off fairly lightly, especially when you consider the damage done to the forecourts and the hotels taken by the IRA in Dublin. The IRA fled, and most men, including Liam Lynch, avoided capture. As the Atlas of the Irish Revolution describes it, the conventional phase of the Civil War was over, replaced 
by a guerrilla war that would last considerably longer. Now, before I leave you, I want to change tack ever so slightly and speak to another event that occurred the week of the Battle of Cork. Two days after Cork City was taken by the Free State, the pro-treaty side should have been celebrating. Dublin was under control, Cork was taken, and the Limerick-Waterford line dreamed up by Lynch had never really materialised. But something happened that would shock the Free State to its core. While battle raged in Cork, Arthur Griffith went into hospital with tonsillitis. Unfortunately, from there, his health drastically deteriorated. And on Saturday, the 12th of August, Arthur Griffith suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and died, aged just 51. This was huge news, and the man was mourned all over the world. In Australia, people wrote, the Friends of Ireland in Australia will place a wreath on his grave. No matter what their politics may be, his good faith has been as conspicuous as his courage. South African leader General Smut wrote that Griffith was quite the strongest man of the Sinn Féin party. While an Irish-American judge in New York declared him one of the greatest men of his generation, the father of Sinn Féin and a scholar. I believe the work in Ireland will go on. His work and life will be an inspiration. I know he felt that the free state was only a step towards ultimate freedom. In Dublin, huge crowds gathered to pay their respects to the man, while even King George sent expressions of regret. Lord Birkenhead, who had sat across the negotiation table from Griffith during the treaty debates, wrote that Griffith perished of sheer exhaustion and overwork. And it's agreed that this was pretty much the case. The last year of Griffith's life had been an incredibly tough one. And he was actually determined to get out of politics. He wanted to spend more time with his wife Molly and his two children. Anyone who listened to my interview with Professor Colum Kenny, one of Griffith's biographers, may remember how he summed up Griffith's last days with the story of him sitting in his office, weeping. A man who had grown up in the shadow of the Parnell split, Griffith had always been determined to create a unified Irish movement. And maybe because of this, the Civil War had such an effect on the man. It's said to have truly crushed him. In April 1922, Griffith had written a note to his wife. It suggested that maybe he knew he was in ill health or was worried what might happen if the civil war got out of hand. It said the following, In case of anything happened to me, all that I possess to go to my wife. Let a sum of £50, however, be provided for my sister. I hope she will be looked after. Let the people stand firm for the free state. It is their national need and economic salvation. I just think that note is amazing and shows his priorities, first to his wife and to his wider family and then to the free state. And so with that, the founding member of Sinn Féin and one of the key figures responsible for Ireland's independence was dead. Sadly, 
and shockingly, another key figure would follow soon after. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website or on Facebook and Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dole, with music by Liam Doyle and additional help from assistant producer Aoife Murphy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.